We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. If you will turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Our sermon text today will be verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 10. Let's read those together. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now when he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. I wonder how many of you are really big into checklists um, there's a, a, a great app. I remember when this app first came out, it's called Wonderlist. Do you have the Wonderlist app? Or maybe you just have the Lists app on your iPhone, and you put a task in there, and then once you complete that task, what do you do? You check it off, you swipe it off, or if you're old school, it's on the paper, you mark it off, or you, you know, throw it out. My favorite checklist is the the grocery checklist that my wife gives to me, and that way I know exactly what she wants, and when I pick it up and put it in the cart, I mark it off. Now, unfortunately, that checklist gets renewed every single week. I have to go back to the grocery store and have to spend more money on more food and more groceries. Maybe you're like me, and you have a checklist that has an item that's been on there for a long time. You just can't quite get around to marking that one off. We all have these different checklists, these things that we need to do, and some of them keep coming back and back, and some of them we never fully get to. But there's other things in our lives that once we mark it off our list, it's done. We never have to do it again. For some of you in the audience, maybe it's that bachelor's degree. Once you finish college, you check off that box, and it's done, and you've got that bachelor's degree. 
You don't have to get another. I mean, you can get another one, but you, it's done. Or maybe for some of you, or looking in that corner over there, it's marriage. Right? In just a couple months, Eddie and Zion, when they get married, they're going to mark off that box of singleness. It's done. It's behind them. And they will have gotten married. They're not going to get more married. They're not going to get married again. It's, it's, they are married, and that box is completed. They've effectively marked off two boxes with one action. As we continue our study through the book of Hebrews, we're in the section, I think I described it for us this way before, with all the snow on the ground. The book of Hebrews structurally is like a snowman. The bottom, the, the, the biggest part is about how much better than everything else Jesus is. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than angels. And in the middle section of the book is how, because Jesus is better, he brings us the new covenant. And he brings us into the new covenant. And then the top section of the snowman is how we then live. What are our lives to be like since Jesus is better, since he's brought us into the new covenant? And this is really the last section of that middle part of the snowman where we're looking at the new covenant. And in Hebrews 10, we see that just like that that box gets ticked off and something is finished, Jesus ticks off two boxes at once. He, He marks the box of the old covenant. He completes the old covenant, but he also finishes the new. Or he finishes the old and completes the new. Either way we want to look at it, we can see that Jesus has done the work, and it is finished. Hebrews chapter 10 opens with this wonderful illustration of what the Old Covenant is like. He says that the Old Covenant, the law, is but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the former realities. I don't know how many of you have heard or read Plato's Republic, but Plato gives this this stirring illustration of people that are chained in a cave, and they, they, they're, they're stuck in this cave. They're, they're, they're enslaved in this cave, and they can't see anything. But they see in front of them projected shadows. The first shadow that comes across is the, the shadow in the shape of a ship. And they see the ship, but they don't fully grasp it. Why? They're seeing a two-dimensional object that's a shadow on the wall. Now, what he, Plato says is that Behind them, someone has a light. He, he says it's a large fire. And they're actually carrying a real ship behind them. And that's casting the shadow. Now, looking at the shadow, they, they see some things that are true about the ship. They can see, okay, it has sails. Uh, there's, it's, it's, it's large. But they don't see the true ship. In the same way, Paul is telling us here in Hebrews chapter 10 that The law, it has the the shape of good things to come. We can see a lot of really important things about what is going to come. But it's not the true form. Or he says in another way that the law and the sacrifices, he's talking here specifically about the sacrifices that we read about in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He says that the law cannot make perfect because they're offered every single year. So, in other words, the the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, 
They have to keep being done. In that sense, it's more like my grocery list. I have to do. I have to shop every single week. I have to shop every single week. I check off that list, but another list comes up. Why? Because I'm constantly going to be hungry. I always need more food. And Paul tells us that in the same way, the, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the, the, the sacrifices of the law, they do not perfect. Why? Because they do not provide a final solution. Instead, what do they do? He says in verse 3 that these sacrifices are a reminder of sin. These sacrifices, the killing of blood of the blood, the, the, the killing of bulls and goats, the shedding of their blood, they remind us that our sins continue to pile up. They remind us that something has to die for our sins. And it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, the rest of Hebrews chapter 10 is going to tell us how our sins are in fact taken away. That's the good news. The good news is that our sins are in fact taken away. In fact, look at verse 18 at the very end. Or in fact, in verse 17, I will remember their sins no more and their lawless deeds no more. He just said that the sacrifices cause us to remember our sins every year. And now he says that I will remember your sins no more. So they're done. And in verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Simply put, our sins are no longer remembered. The offering has been completed. The sacrifice is done. But how does that happen? And I want us to look at at, at two parts in verses 5 through 18. There's two phrases that are actually very similar. The first is in verse 10. He says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's verse 10. And then look at verse 14. Let's See how there's some similarities there. He says, For by a single, or once for all, offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's there's a lot of similarities between those verses. There's the, the phrase once for all and single. The word offering is present in both. The giving up, the sacrifice of one. Uh, We have those who are sanctified and those who are being sanctified. And these two verses, I think, are going to help us see that there are two ways in which Christ's sacrifice, Christ, his death on the cross, completes the work of redemption, that he finishes the old covenant, and he completes the new for us. So let's look at the first, and these are going to be in verses 5 through 10. Verses 5 through 10. Let's read verses 5 through 10 just so that we get it back in our minds. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Paul is here making a very important point. And it's a theological point that in the systematic theology book that they're going through in, the men's, uh, in, uh, in, in our Connect group, you'll probably come on to. But he's talking here about what's called the active righteousness or the active obedience of Christ. And what do we mean by that? We mean that Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled God's law for us. He perfectly fulfilled God's law for us. How do we see that here? Well, Paul is quoting from Psalm 40, which Evelyn read for us earlier. And we see then that it's not sacrifices and offerings that God desires. It's not sacrifices and offerings that God desires, but what is it? It's in the doing of God's will. It's in the doing of God's will. Now, an astute listener will, will see. Okay, whenever Evelyn read Psalm 40 for us, she read, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but an ear you have given me. That's what it says in Psalm 40, verse 6. So why does Paul say a body here? Why does he change the word? Is he trying to pull a fast one on us? What's going on? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to understand what's going on in Psalm chapter 40. Whenever David makes this statement, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but an ear you have prepared for me, I, I think that he is referring to a text in Exodus chapter 21. So in Exodus chapter 21, it's, you'll, your Bible is going to give you a, a, a heading that says the laws about slaves. And slavery in the context of, of ancient Israel is slightly different than slavery in the, the, in fact, it's vastly different than the context of slavery in, uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. But there are rules on how slaves ought to live on how slave owners and, and ought to treat their slaves. But in verse 6 of Exodus chapter 1, we have this rule. And I'm going to start in verse, verse 5, actually. Because the, uh, the master is supposed to free the slave. Every, every 50th year, the, the, the master is to free the slave. His debt has been paid. So slavery does not last forever. You've paid your debt. You are to go free. Verse 5 says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Moses, and in fact God, is giving this carve-out in the law that you have to free your slaves. He's saying, if a slave really loves his master, if the slave is doing well in the service of his master, then he can stay in the service of that master. But he has to go to the master, and the master is going to dig out 
like pierce his ear and put an awl in his ear. Now, why would David say, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but you have dug out for me an ear? I believe that David is saying, God, you have been so good to me that I submit to you. I submit to you. I will do your will. Because that's what slavery here is in this context of of Exodus chapter 21. It's a submission to the will of that master. And David is saying in Psalm 40, God, you desire obedience. You desire righteousness. And I submit myself to you. I will do your will. And in fact, in verse 7, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will. Well, what is the will of God? Leading up to Psalm chapter 40, particularly in Psalm chapter 1, what do we see? We see that the will of God is righteousness. The will of God is to, as Psalm 1 says, to delight in his law, to delight in the law of the Lord and on his law to meditate day and night, not like the sinner, not like the one who is wicked, who will perish. And throughout the Psalms, in Psalm 5, David says again, lead me in righteousness, God. To do the will of God is to seek to follow him. Now we see that this psalm in Psalm 40 is in fact talking about Jesus. Now he changes the word ear there to body. And he does so for a few reasons. One is that you can't have an ear without a body. And it indicates to us that the, the, the offering of obedience, this, this offering requires a body. It requires human flesh. He just said that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins, but what can? A human body. A person. A person that is righteous. A person that has done God's will. So in verse 10, when he says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, Paul is telling us that we are saved by righteousness. But it is a righteousness that is not ours. It is a righteousness of God's. We are saved through doing the will of God. But it's not our will. It's the will of the one whose body was sacrificed, Jesus Christ. That's why we call it active obedience, or the active righteousness of Christ. We, you see, we understand that Jesus did not have other gods before the one true God. He did not take the name of the Lord in vain. He did not lie. He did not steal. He did not cheat. All the things that we should have done and did not do, Christ did. All the things that God requires that we fall short of, Christ fulfilled. He checked the box once for all. Psalm 40 shows us that Jesus obeyed the will of God. As a slave that listens to the master in the Exodus context because out of love and devotion to that master, the one who has an ear and hears the commands of the master, Christ came and he obeyed the law of God. 
when we think about the active righteousness of Christ, this informs much of what we say about salvation. When we say that you don't have to be good enough to earn salvation, we need to be very careful to add the next part, which is to say that, praise God, Christ was. Christ was righteous. Christ did God's will. And because he did God's will, in his body, in a human body, not the body of a a bull or a goat, but in a human body, Christ was righteous. He fulfilled God's will. But the second way that we see that Christ completes the work of salvation, the, the work of atonement, the work of redemption, is through what we call his passive obedience. His passive obedience, and that's in verses 11 through 14 specifically. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What is the offering that was made once for all, the single offering? It was the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross, bearing the weight of our sins, as we read in the Heidelberg Catechism, that he bore the wrath of God in his sins. And much the same way that the sacrificial lamb or, or the bull or the goat in the Old Testament, the, the, the sin of the people was taken and it was placed on the lamb. And the lamb was killed. That lamb took the punishment for sin that should have been on the people of God. Now God designed this beautifully. He was gracious to give the sacrificial lamb. He was gracious to give the the, the Paschal Lamb at Passover that the Lamb would be killed, that its blood would be put over the doors so that the blood of the people of Israel would be spared. In that sense, God does not require the blood of the people of Israel. He requires the blood of the bull of goats and lambs and bulls. That's why we call it a passive obedience Because God did not require that that a human be sacrificed. He did not require that, okay, you stole, you broke the law, you have to be killed. But Christ, his sacrifice is better because he gives of himself. He gives of his body. He died. He bore the weight of God's wrath. He bore the weight of our sins. But his sacrifice was once for all. It completed the work. You see, every year, I think that the, the sacrifice that Paul is, is specifically comparing to here is, is the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, where a, a, a spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, without sin, who has done the will of God, a spotless lamb is taken That spotless lamb is killed. That spotless lamb's blood is spilt. But every year, it has to be done again. And every year, it has to be done again. 
In verse 11, it says that every priest stands daily at his service, offering the same sacrifices. It's that grocery list that keeps getting renewed every week and again and again and again. But when Christ comes, whenever Christ dies, whenever his body is broken, whenever his blood is spilled, read what it says. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what does he do? Does he continue to stand in verse 12? He sat down. It is finished. It's done. Christ's offering of himself on the cross finishes the work of salvation. We do not need the blood of bulls, goats, and rams. This is why we don't need a temple in Jerusalem. Because the temple of Jerusalem is where you would bring the bloods of bulls and goats. We don't need that anymore. Why? Because Christ shed his blood. Remember, the the bulls and goats, those are the shadows on the wall. Those are the shadows on the wall. Christ's blood, his single sacrifice, is the true reality. It is the good thing that has come. Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Church, that's, that's us. That's us. To be sanctified are those who, who are set apart for God. If you've ever done, done baking, I don't do baking. I, I like to cook a lot of things, but I don't do baking. So Eric probably knows this more than I. But like if you're making like a, a coffee cake, you'll see the recipe and it'll say, you know, one cup sugar, and, and, or, but then it'll say like half cup separated. So you use you know, half the sugar for the, the, the flour and the mix, and then you use the other half for the crumble. I shouldn't have used this illustration because I'm not a baker. But what, it, what you're doing there is, we'll say set apart half of it. In the same way, church, this is us. We have been taken out. We have been set apart for God. And how has that been done? It's through the offering of the body of Christ. It's through his perfect life where he completed and he lived according to God's law perfectly. And it's through his death on the cross for us. The one who is perfect, dying for those who are imperfect. The one who is without sin, dying for those who are destroyed and broken by sin. And through that, Once for all, through one act, the death of Christ on the cross, we have been saved. Our sins are forgiven. We do not need anything else. Jesus is better. Why is he better? Jesus is better than the sacrifices of the old covenant. Jesus is better than turning to idols. Jesus is better than trying to earn your salvation on your own. Why? Because he has completed the work. He has completed the work. And there is forgiveness of sin. Perhaps you struggle with the guilt of your sin. I know I do. I I really struggled this week. And I thought, how with my sin being so great, how could I how could God ever love me? How could I ever spend an eternity with the Holy God? And I was Studying this text, I'm reminded that, praise God, my sins are forgiven. 
When your faith is in Christ, church, your sins are forgiven. Christ has finished the Old Testament, the the Old Covenant, or the, the law, the sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats and rams. He has done away with that. And he has offered of himself. He died on the cross after having lived a perfect life so that we might be saved. Now that's great news. That is the gospel. And my hope is that your faith will be put in Christ. That you will trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And we could end it right there and say, great, theological message, we're done. But I want us to think about how these two aspects of Christ's redeeming work, his active righteousness or his active obedience and his passive righteousness or passive obedience, I want us to think about how that affects us as a church, and in particular, how that affects what we do every Sunday in our worship service. Because I think sometimes we, we, we have misconceptions about what we are doing here on Sunday mornings. What exactly is it that we're, that we're doing? Whenever Eric and I, on various Sundays, so this Sunday Eric put together the order of service, or most Sundays whenever I'm doing it, we're doing intentional things. We're putting things in the service on purpose. So I want to use this framework of Christ's once-for-all finished work through his perfectly righteous life and his sinless death upon the cross to think about aspects of our worship service and why they are there and what we are doing. So let's first look at, at, at uh, it's near the, the beginning of our service, You can even turn. You can even turn to the bulletin here. Nearly every Sunday, we have a prayer of confession and then assurance of pardon. Why do we have that in our service? I'm going to tell you a couple reasons why we don't have it. It's not in there so that you can get on your hands and knees, or even sitting down. You can say, I have been so bad this week. I've done this, 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 I've done this. And if you are successful in listing out every single sin that you've done, then you've earned God's favor. We don't put it there so that you can say, oh, I'm more sorrowful for my sins this week than I've ever been. So that must mean I'm doing pretty good, right? Now think about the words that we sang in Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. I can't do enough. I can't fulfill God's law enough because of my sin. He says, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? If I cried enough for my sin, if I was sorrowful enough for my sin, then that'll wash away my sins, right? Augustus tells us all of that. For sin could not atone. Christ must save and Christ alone. The confession of sin in our order of service is not a chance for us to just to, to fully unload all of our sin and then we've taken care of it. We can't. But why do we have it in there? It's because it reminds us of the dangers of sin, 
the words to one of the, the, the hymns that we sing says, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Far from the confession of sin being our attempt to deal with our sin on our own and be sorry enough for it, what we're wanting to do with the confession of sin is to help us see how great it is, to see how terrible it is, to see the awfulness of it, so that we might look to Christ. Simply put, the confession of sin is put in our service to strengthen our faith, to remind us of our need of a Savior so that we might call out to Him for his grace, and for his goodness. What about singing? Do we put singing in the service so that we can sing more loudly and and sing more joyfully and thus earn God's favor? I remember I was in a preaching class almost 10 years ago, and in that class, one of the professors, he he gave us um, some sermons to listen to. And he, we were supposed to sort of dissect the sermons and say, well, what, what was bad about this sermon? What was good about this sermon? Where could they have improved? And one of the sermons was preached by a, a very popular preacher, at least at the time, here in Chicago. And he was preaching the, the, um, the I, I believe it was the text um, from the life of Elijah. And all I remember is at one point, he starts singing and dancing on the stage, and he says, we praise and we sing our praise to God so that he hears us and then will give us his blessings. And then he, like for five minutes, he starts dancing around singing, praises go up and blessings come down. Praises go up and blessings come down. And then the band joins in, and then he's dancing. And for five minutes... He said, praises go up so that blessings come down. And this is what I call the vending machine God. Right? If we put enough quarters in, if I sing loudly enough today, or if I know enough of the words to the songs, then God's going to be really happy with me and I'm going to have a good week. But that is wrong. That is wrong. Our praises don't go up so that blessings can come down. The blessing has come to us in Christ. The blessings have come to us in Christ. And Colossians 3 tells us why we sing. So that the word of Christ might dwell in us more richly. Why do we sing, church? We sing so that we might be reminded We sing so that we might teach one another and build one another up and strengthen one another so that our faith might grow, so that we might look to Christ and that our hope is more firmly placed in Him. We need reminding. We need reminding of Christ and His work. John and I were talking about this this morning. In coming to church, we are reminding each other. We are pointing each other once again to Christ. We're telling each other with heavy heads, weak from sorrow, weak from the suffering, look to Christ, turn your eyes to Him. We're not seeking to earn God's favor by what we do. He has given us His favor in Christ, and we respond in praise. What about the confession of faith? 
It's not by nailing every single word in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Whatever we're doing, we're not earning God's favor by saying all the right words. It's not as, okay, I got that section right today. Yes. But what we are doing by saying to one another sound words is we're reminding one another. We're, we're teaching one another. We're building one another up and saying, this is what Christ has done. He did come. He did take on a body. His blood was shed for us. He was raised from the grave. And as we hear these words, our faith is strengthened. We're, our faith in Christ is renewed. What about the shedding of Christ's blood? In just a few moments, we're going to take together the Lord's Supper. And this is one of the more misunderstood aspects of Christian worship. It's one of the most divisive aspects of Christian worship. Is the body of Christ being re-sacrificed? What's going on when we take the Lord's Supper together? Hebrews tells us very clearly that Christ died once for all. He died once for all. Nothing that Eric and I are doing here this morning, whenever we take the lid off, whenever we pray, whenever we read, whenever we take and eat together, there's nothing magical that we are doing. We are not re-sacrificing the body of Christ. His, his body and His blood are not being represented before us. But what is happening is we are remembering what we've just said, that a body was prepared for Christ, that his blood was shed for us. John Calvin, in talking about the Lord's Supper, says this, and it was just, it's a very succinct way, and it, it helps me. The promise which communion gives us clearly reveals the end for which it was instituted and the purpose for which it serves. It is meant to assure us that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was once and for all delivered up for us, so that it is now and forever will be ours. And also that his blood was once for all shed for us, so that it is and always will be ours. When we come together to eat and to drink the bread and the cup, we remember that Christ's body was, shed, was broken, and it was broken for you. And we remember that Christ's blood was shed, and it was shed for you. Church, we eat and we drink together to strengthen our faith. We eat and we drink together so that our hearts will be strengthened. Amy and I just celebrated 10 years of marriage about a month ago. And as we celebrated our anniversary and, and went to our favorite restaurant and had an evening without the kids, it, it's not like we're more married. But, you know, we did go home and we looked at pictures of the wedding to remember. And in those 10 years, whenever we tell each other, I love you, good night, give each other a kiss, it's not as if we are getting more married every time. But what we're doing is we are reminding each other and we are renewing and we are strengthening that love for each other. Church, whenever we come in a few moments to take of the Lord's Supper together, I pray that our love of Christ 
will be strengthened. I pray that our faith in him will be deepened. We don't get more saved. He is not more sacrificed. He is not more perfect because of what we do here. He is perfect already. He has done it. But as we eat and we drink together, let our faith be strengthened as those who are being perfected by the single work of Christ. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for the work of Christ. We thank you that he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for his active obedience in our behalf, that he was perfectly righteous, that he fulfilled your law, that he was without sin. And we thank you for his passive obedience, that he died on the cross, that his body was broken and his blood was shared to save us from sins. Dear Father, I pray that as we have heard these words, as we come now to sing, as we come to this table to eat together, I pray that we will have true Eucharistia, which is true joy and thanksgiving for what Christ has done. Strengthen our faith in the one who has finished the work, Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.